is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is melted from ore. Mortals put an end to the darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and sway. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as fire. Lapis lazuli comes from its rocks and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that the hidden knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. People assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock, their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophion, with precious onyx or lapis lazuli. N neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Kush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Then where does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing. It's concealed even from the birds in the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumour of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to do it, to it and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the end of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for me, th thunderstorm, then he looked at the wisdom and praised it. Um, he confirmed it and tested it, and he said to the human race, fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Thank you, Matthew. Beautifully read. Thank you very much. Um, so we'll pass over to John, and I'll just pray for you now, John. Thank you, Matthew. So, yes, Lord, we just pray now um, for John as he comes to speak to us. Pray that you would just anoint him with your words. Pray that um, we would hear, that you would give us ears to hear. And uh, pray that our hearts and minds will be changed because of what you say to us today. In your name. Amen. Over to John. Hello. Good morning. Alton Baptist Church. Can you wave if you can hear me? Uh, very good. You need to wave again if I, if I stop being uh, heard. Hello, especially to Sam McClelland. I can see you in, in the depth of the Internet there in your, um, in your student bedroom. Um, I hope it's going really well. Where you are, we're thinking of you. Uh, thanks, thanks for coming back this morning. Obviously, it's quite tough to go to church, isn't it, in the middle of COVID. So uh, you're totally welcome here until you find another place. Don't you worry about that. Okay, um, 
when I was at school, which is like 200 years ago, um, <laughs> my favourite subject was uh, English. And uh, my favourite part of English was the exams, which sounds kind of, you know, um, swatty, but they... Um, I love two things about exams in school. The first thing was that you're always instructed by, by the teachers who want to kind of massage your shoulders going into the exam. Always read the question. I, I want to, to say to them, write easier questions if it's so difficult that the first thing we must do is, is panic as to whether we've read the question properly. But my favourite type of um, question in English in the exam was always the, you know, um, quintessence discuss you know there, there was always an exam question which just said write whatever you want <laughs> you know creatively write whatever you feel here's two words turn them into an essay and the the subject that i've been given this morning is the guidance of god in the old testament which is a bit like those english assignments because basically um it's an invitation to preach whatever i want whatever i want and what i'm going to try and do in the next sort of 18, 19 minutes is, is do justice to the gravity of that question. And I'm going to take you on quite a, quite a complex journey. I hope that's going to be okay. I hope that you're going to keep up. Let me give you a map of where we're going to be going. I'm going to be saying that an interventionist, non-rational God um, appears on the scene uh, and that by his manifold presence, by the multiplicity of the different ways in which he is presence, present, he guides the human race. And that by that guidance, he offers um, a promise. And the promise is that his guidance will cease to be external and it will start to be indwelling. And because of that, we have the church. Um, that's roughly where I'm going. If you want to go and make a cup of tea now and come back in, in 18 minutes, that's what I'll have said. Always read the question. Well, you know, if we're looking at the guidance of God in the Old Testament, we have to ask ourselves, what is the Old Testament? And that's that's really a very, very big question. We certainly know that it is 66 ancient documents that are the basis of the Jewish religion, completed about maybe two and a half thousand years ago. We certainly know that. But upon studying them, we realise that um, there's no moral culture in there. There's nothing simple about what's going on. It begins with mythos. I don't think that the creation story is a myth in 10 in a sense that it isn't true, but I think that the creation story is written in the form of a myth. The creator God turns up, and all that those stories do is they testify not to how that God made the world, but that God made the world. That's the purpose of, the, of that writing. And because that God made the world, the writing transforms into a kind of history of sorts, but it's not the classical history that would satisfy our post-enlightenment brains where we could ask about the facts of it, because it's a history of the revelation of the God that made the world. And because the God that made the world begins to reveal himself, you see spiritual ethics turn up. You get a sense in which he must be present in the way that ethics is designed. And so the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other things turn up to help us phrase the idea of goodness in the idea of the revelation of the idea of the creator of the universe. And because that starts to have its effect, you see a sacramentalism turn up. You see an idea of what is sacred and what is not. So um, writings like Leviticus, which everybody thinks are just books full of rules, are actually books full of the idea of what is sacred, what is holy, and how can one approach the divine who is giving us the, the spiritual ethics in order to live, who has been revealing himself in history because he's the creator 
of everything. And then you get this peculiar twist in the tale where um, a group of writers decide that they need to combine all of those categories into this very preternatural, very strange, spooky sort of writing, which is prophecy. And prophecy appears to be um, a kind of way that the, the word of God goes out um, through this strange hybrid of um, the acceptance of the creation, the understanding of history, the idea of ethics, and the sacramental interaction with God. It's very heavy stuff. And all that that does is basically prove Nick Cave wrong. And if you don't know who he is, don't worry. It proves that we have an interventionist God. God intervenes. But unfortunately for you, and, uh, or maybe not, but unfortunately for you, we're not finished because Nick Cave has to take centre stage again because well over a third of the Old Testament has got nothing to do with those categories. Well over a third of the Old Testament is written in the form of song lyrics from which we draw uh, many of our own songs, is written in the forms of poetry. So the, the, the great love poem of all love poems is in the Old Testament. It's written in the form of meditations on culture, meditations on wisdom. And Matthew has just beautifully read one of the greatest Old Testament meditations of wisdom that exists. And that form of speaking is not rational. It's, it's, it's poetry, it's music, it's philosophy. It's not rational. It's not, about, it's not about categories and working out how things tick. It's about what's going on in the viscera of us. And so we have this interventionist God, yes, but we have this non-rational God, this God who doesn't wish to be put into categories that are classical in, in any way. And we're not finished there, because whilst all that is happening, we see that there's another set of writing in the Old Testament, which is um, not like those at all. It's the, it is the, the language of questions. Um, some of the most deep philosophical writing in the, in the Bible is written in the language of questions. And all the truth and the beauty and the love of the poetry and all of the revelation of the other stuff is couched in the idea of questions. And those are not easy questions. There are questions that dare to question God. And therefore, the Old Testament offers us a God who dares to suffer our questions, as indeed he will dare to suffer other things for us, from us going forward. And there are basically five kinds of questions in the Old Testament. Who are you, God? Who are we? What's the right thing to do? What do we do when things go wrong? And then that last category, that philosophical category of writings, which is one of my favourites, ask the biggest question. And it's the question that every one of us has asked, do ask or will ask at some point in our lives. And God forbid that you have to ask it too soon. But it will be the question that, that shapes humanity. Why is it so hard? And the God of the Old Testament who comes in answer to those questions, says that I, I intervene. I am not rational and I will give you guidance. And the way that I'll give you guidance is I will be present when you ask these questions, which is astonishing. It's astonishing the idea that God is going to be present. And you see a whole bunch of different ways in the literatures of the Old Testament where God is present. God is directly present. The, the, the mythos, the, the creation story, we get a couple of people, Eve and Adam, and God is directly available to them. He, he visits them, he walks with them, he talks with them. He's, there's no filter between him and them. He's directly available. Of course, there are rules and they break them catastrophically, which breaks the relationship. But 
he was directly available to them. When they have a child, he's called Cain. God directly approaches him and says, look, there's another presence in this world, son, and it longs to hold you, it longs to have you, and you need to resist it or it won't go well. And Cain ignores God and it becomes a warning to us all as to what happens when evil is given sway. But it's not just that kind of human nature that it is that turns up in the Bible. We get people about a few hundred years later, like Enoch, who we don't talk about very often because we don't know much about him, but he so deeply pleased God. He was such a righteous man who walked and talked with God in the way that it was possible to do, that God decided that he needed to come and be with him and have direct access to the presence of God in perpetuity. Cain suffers us as a warning of choosing evil. Enoch offers us the promise of God, the desire of God for those who walk in his way, which is that he longs to be present with them. And when God tries to draw those lines on a, on a, on a world scale, when we get the story of Noah, whatever that means to you, um, God is present, physically present in Noah. God even takes a physical role in closing up the boat. And drawing a line over that which is that which is destroyed and that which is saved and and he's he's extremely eminent and his mythos gives way to history and we get the, sto the stories of um the the fathers of israel moses is someone who meets god who walk, who talks with god who sees god directly the original israelites are people who see manifestations of the presence of god directly in their camp they've got a tent called the place of meeting where god actually meets with them the direct guiding presence of God is available. And at one point when God points out to Moses that things are getting a little bit heavy and his presence might be too much for them, that he might destroy them because they're so sinful, Moses says to him, we are not going to the new world unless you come with us. Because if you won't come with us, how will anybody know who we are? The direct guiding presence of God, such an important source of identity. But it's not the only presence that we see. God also has a cloaked presence in the Old Testament. If you wind the story back a little bit to Abram and Sarah, the, the new Adam and Eve, who are called out of um, all the, the kind of growth of the big civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia and Babylon and all this stuff going on. And God calls them and draws them. He draws them with a presence which is occluded, which is slightly hidden. God speaks to them in secret. God visits them in disguise. They don't always know that it's God who has turned up until a wee bit later in the story. So there is, there is a kind of a cheeky side to God where he gently orchestrates things without necessarily being a big manifest pillar of fire and cloud and flame and, and glory. And when, um, the, when people like Jacob encounter God, um, he encounters God through his dreams. He dreams about God and then he wakes up and he realizes he's been in the presence of God and therefore must be found be in a holy place and it changes his view of the world and when he is at the pinnacle point of his life when he's going to change his identity and going to enter either into death at the hands of his brother or flourishing at the hands of God he doesn't know which it is all by himself late at night a man joins him and the man doesn't speak to him or describe the universe to him the man begins to wrestle with him and he realizes through the process that the person that he is wrestling with is God and so he demands that God tells him his name and he doesn't get an answer. Instead, God renames him. The occluded presence of God turns up. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press and a man visits him. And it's only later he discovers that God was so impressed with his 
teenage angst about how bad everything was and how no one was resisting the oppressor, that God had chosen him to be the greatest warrior yet seen. When Esther is swept up in a, in a naive schoolgirl dream of beauty and palaces and beauty contests and, and all sorts of stuff, and she's, she's overwhelmed with the idea of wealth, God comes to her and says, you don't get it. You don't understand. I have been orchestrating this because you are the hope for future generations. For a time such as this, I want your youth to be in my hands. They realize later that God has, has been on the scene all along. And as the history rolls on, the, the presence of God gives way to a, a represented presence of God. People are, are, are the vehicle through which God represents himself. So we see the rise of the prophets. We see um, Samuel turns up counterculturally called from, um, from boyhood as a rejection of the established order that God wants to do a new thing in him. And he's given the words of God on his lips and he never lets a word from his mouth fall to the ground. And he becomes a great leader because the prophecy of God, the word of God goes out through him. And, the, and Israel is guided through a person who represents the presence of God. A little bit later in the day, Deborah is given the same office and she handsomely fills the shoes or the sandals of Samuel, even though she's a countercultural choice, a woman who's going to lead Israel. And it causes her some friction, but she deals with it and becomes a great leader. And so the voice of God proceeds through his prophets to lead his people. When the kings turn up, well, um, the prophets take a role of counsellor. So when young Josiah is made king at a very tender age, and then he realises when he's restoring the, the temple, they've found the book of the law, and he doesn't know what it means, and he doesn't know what, what is required. He consults the prophetess Huldah, who is the gatekeeper of the knowledge of God in that society, and she tells him how to interpret the law. She tells him what God requires. The word of God goes out through her and guides the whole of Israel back on track temporarily again. When the kings reach their ascendancy and are taking full political control, there are good ones and there are bad ones. One of the bad ones is Ahab, and a guy called Elijah is a prophet who is a stone in his shoe for the whole of his life and completely indicts and speaks truth to his power the whole time. And, and God supernaturally causes that to happen, have his own voice come out in competition with the strong voices of society. And when David, who's a complex kind of good king, but all very flawed, slips off the rails and, and, and nearly ruins everything, God sends Nathaniel the prophet to say to him, you are the man. You are hanging on the precipice of the devastation of everything you stand for and everything you've said God stands for. You need to put your life right, right now or this is going to go to hell in a handbasket. And David listens and repents, not without consequence, but the word of God goes out from the prophets and makes him change his heart. And God moves on, the beat moves on. So when Solomon, David's son, builds the temple, now we have priests, now we have offerings, now we have sacrifices. And so the way to go to God to get his guidance is to enter into a mystery, is to go into a place of sacrament it's to make yourself holy and come before a holy god and that's a very kind of strange non-rational not clear not something you can make up sort of a thing and in that people seek the guidance of god make their offerings and hope that god will listen to them and the final and almost the kind of meta level of uh, god's guidance in terms of his presence being the thing that guides is the scripted presence of god the writing. Moses is told, write down the words of this law 
so that it will be the very life of these people. The oracles and the prophets, their pupils and their children wrote down the words that they said so that it would be kept for future generations. The priests and the politicians wrote down their versions of history, very different versions of history, coming from very different filters as to who God is and how he intervenes. And all the time that these people are doing this writing, there is a choir singing in the gallery and the choir is made up of the prophets and the prophets are only singing one song over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who intervenes, who was and is and is to come, who is here, who will be here. This is our testimony. Now that's your Old Testament. And the, que the question is, what do we do with it? How does that translate into the guidance of God so that we might benefit from it? Well, luckily for you, it's quite simple. All of that presence, that, that mythos, that history, that sacred ethics, that sacramentalism, that prophecy, that poetry, that song, that wisdom, that philosophy, those questions and how they are to be approached are approached in the single thing that all of that funnels down to. It funnels down to a promise. The presence of God, the manifold presence of God becomes a single promise. I will no longer be external. I will no longer be an external God who guides you. I am going to come and indwell in you. And for that reason, we get the church. And so if we want to take our guidance from the Old Testament in terms of what that says to us, then the church has a couple of questions that it must answer. The Old Testament guide tells us that the purpose of the church, the, the primary purpose of the church, the main purpose of the church is that people must be drawn into the presence of the living God. That is our raison d'etre. That is why we are there. We should be unashamed of any amount of effort, any amount of money, any amount of resource, any amount of complaint that we're not doing, doing social this or community that or any of these things. Our purpose is to bring people into the presence of the living God. And if that happens, the world will be a changed place. So we need to be testing the level to which that is actually true. Do our meetings, do our gatherings, do the things that we obsess over, bring people into the presence of the living God so that they can be a changed race because that is our primary purpose, it's obvious to us. The second thing that the guidance of the God of the Old Testament tells us Needs, needs to be true, is that we must be the cloaked presence of God in our society. We are the agent provocateur. We are the people who go out and make the kingdom a reality. That is our mandate. The Evangelical Alliance is always telling us to evangelize people. That's great. We should evangelize people. But it's not the only gig. You know, it's not the only thing that we should be doing. We need to be the hands and feet of Christ. We need to be the people who go out and who find those who need to be inspired, find those who need their lives repaired, find those who need to be agitated in the name of God, and, and flipping well, do it. And so our meetings, our gatherings, our house groups, our teaching, our training, our preaching must do something to inspire people to change the way they live so that they are deliberately trying to orchestrate the works of God in the home, in the street, in the classroom, in the workplace, in the politics. There's no excuse for not doing that. The church must be provocative and be the cloaked presence of God in the world. The third thing that has to happen is that the church has to be a place where the word of God goes out from us. And the only way that can happen is if we revere prophecy, if we identify the prophets amongst us and we give them a mandate to speak to us, admonish us, teach us, correct us, guide us. There is no vision without prophecy. There's no leadership without prophecy. There should be no preaching 
without prophecy. The word of God goes out from his people, goes out through his prophets and into his people, and those people are a changed race because of it. And so we need to reveal that. Prophecy is not an all-you-can-eat buffet when you get to new wine once a year. It is the main course for the life of the church. We should be feeding on it at all times. And those of us who are not of a charismatic bent, who don't want that to happen, need to look to themselves a little bit. This is how God guides his people. We want to be guided by God. We sing this all the time. Let's make it true in our actions. And let's take the risks that go with that, because the risks that come with that are big. Because a prophecy-led church is always a church that's heading into the unknown. It's not a church that is dealing with making the certain of a higher quality. So we need to be that kind of people. We need to be the kind of people who the, the, the interventionist, non-rational, present God of the Old Testament tells us we need to be, which is we have to be, there has to be sacramentalism among us. Our relationships with each other are not the relationships that we see in the world. We're not trying to tell the world, come and be with us. We're ju we are just a little bit like you. And by the way, we've got this friend called Jesus and we want you to meet him. But all other things, we are the same. We're not the same. We're not the same as them. There must be spirituality in our relationships. We must have deep calling to deep in the way that each of us deals with one another. We must open our hearts. We must open our lives. We must confess our sins. We must deal with each other radically in good, solid, God-loving, God-honoring relationships. It's not enough. It's not enough to congregate. It's not enough to associate. It's not enough to be a nice crisis response when something goes wrong. It's not enough. We're called to be deep relational beings just as God is a deep relational being. We need to speak the language, not as, the, as was in the past in the church, the language of Zion. We need to speak the language of the divine. We need to call God out of each other, whether it's Sam McClellan sitting in Banger or whether it's Matthew Miles sitting on the sofa in, in Shirley or, or whether it's the, the, anybody else you know, we should be calling forth God out of one another. That is the, that, those are the things that point to God. So we, we, we must not be ashamed of our sacramentalism, of our baptisms, of our Eucharists, of our prayer meetings, of our healing meetings, of our, of our wedding ceremonies, of our blessings, of our prayers. We must be proud of those. And we call people in to say, this is how it is different with us. We are a different race. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. The last thing that the guidance of the God of the Old Testament tells us as a church we must be doing is that we must be people who are celebrants of the scripted presence of God. We must celebrate the existence of the Bible. And not in the way that we used to in the old days where we would write Holy Bible in really big letters on the front in gold and pretend that the, the book itself was somehow magical uh, and mysterious and, and, and spooky all by itself as an artifact. That is not what the, the word holy refers to. The Bible is a gateway to a relationship with a holy God. It's not a holy book. It's a relationship with a holy God who's testified to therein, whose presence is found therein. And with the Holy Spirit on your shoulder, reading that, your life has changed. So we must be unashamed of how much we love the Bible. Warts and all, flaws and all, difficulties and all, all the critique over the centuries of how it was formed and who wrote it and why it doesn't do this or that. Never mind all that. It's simply is the Bible is a statement of the life of the I am. It simply is. And we must tell people, babes, infants, teens, seekers and saints, all together, that this is the story of the I am. And if you engage with it, and if you have a lifelong relationship of love with it, 
you will be a changed person. You'll never understand it. You'll never overwhelm it. You'll never get to the top of the bottom of what it's all about. That's not the point of the thing. The point of the thing is it is God's guidance for you. And wrestle away like Jacob for hours. Wrestle away. That will make you a changed person. We have to celebrate that that is what this thing is about and push it forward. If we do all of that, if that Old Testament guidance of the presence of God, if the, if the, the interventionist, non-rational, manifold, present God who's turned that presence into an indwelling promise is accepted by us as the church, then we will become famous. We'll become famous because we are the place of longing after that God. We are the people who will stand up and say, we dare to say, we know who God is. We don't care about your categories. We don't care about your critique and your polytheism and your culture. We know who God is. If you want to know who God is, come and talk to us. We dare to say we know who we are. We are just as messed up as the rest of you, but we have an identity which is founded in Christ and it is unshakable because we know who we are. Come taste and see that the Lord is good for us and could be good for you. We need to be the people who say we know what the right thing to do is. We don't always do it. We don't always do it. We can't always do it. We're flawed like the rest of you, but we know what the right thing to do is and we'll stand by it. It doesn't mean we'll judge you through it. It doesn't mean that we'll force you out of our meetings if you can't cope with it, but we know what it is. There is a goodness to God and we celebrate it. We need to say that we are the people who know how to repair the broken things, the broken things that are within us, the broken things that are among us, the broken things that are around us. We have the 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 divine codex of being able to deal with that in community with one another come taste and see that the lord is good he will heal he will repair he is the one who restores and we are the custodians of that message we need to dare to say that the greatest living question that there is in the world why is it so hard is a question that we have rights to we will turn to the world and we will say why is it so hard come and see that we don't know either that we've got no idea how to answer that question that we've got no gift we've got no 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 secret no no pearl no nothing to give you we find that hard as well but what we have is the god of history the god of saints sacred ethics the god of sacramentalism the god of revealed presence we have the god of abraham isaac and jacob we have the god of jesus christ we have the god of our own selves to offer you when you need to struggle with those questions. And it will be better, it will go well with you if you associate yourself with the people of longing, the people who know that why is it so hard has to be met as a question daily and dealt with as a, as a reality for humanity. We don't shy away from the question and hide in our toys. We are the people of longing. And we say to the world through the, through the identity of the church, that meets these criteria, come and see, come and taste, come and feel, come and enjoy a love that is vast as the ocean. The way that you will do that is when you show them a community of people whose longing is as deep as the sea. Amen. <laughs>